Thank you, Kelly. Uh, this is Sharon. Hello. I know many of you, but I was delighted when I looked at the registration list to see that there are many of you I don't know. Um, always nice to bring new people into the fold. And so welcome uh, to learn about uh, Pennsylvania's new occupational licensing reform law. Um, I guess the key word that may be missing from the title, just to be clear what this is about in case it's not, is the word criminal, um, criminal record, because that essentially is what has been um, reformed in our occupational licensing reform laws. Uh, Brendan and I were both um, very much involved in the legislative campaign to get this law passed along with the the Justice Action Network, uh, a bipartisan advocacy group that is working on criminal justice reform matters around the country. Uh, so we have some insight into what this law is supposed to mean. Um, but frankly, there are a number of things that will be a big um, question for us in terms of how they are going to play out. And we'll find that out as well as you do when the law goes into effect on December 28th. Um, so with no further ado, uh, let's turn to the overview of what uh, this occupational licensing reform is all about. Um, to start with, uh, the formal name of this law is Act 53. Um, so you can uh, sometimes hear it called that. I personally end up uh, finding act this and that confusing and occupational licensing reform works better for me. Uh, but Act 53 is the formal name. It had been Senate Bill 637. So if you wanted to look at the text of the law, uh, given that I don't think it's codified yet because it hasn't gone into effect, uh, Senate Bill 637 from the legislature's website is what you would pull up. Let me just give you a little bit of um, a warning about that. If you choose to look at the bill, most of the provisions that we're talking about today start on page 34 of the bill because the legislature uh, ended up wanting to do some cleanup work in codifying the law um, on issues having nothing to do with criminal records. Um, they uh, didn't really change anything, um, but they codified it. And so there are pages and pages of stuff that um, might cause you to scratch your head because you think um, it's not relevant, which is true for this purpose. Um, but it's not even new. It's just been codified. So page 34, if you start to look at this bill. Um, so uh, here are the highlights of what Act 53 did. Um, our goal when we were working on this legislation was to uh, figure out a way that we could broadly reform um, criminal record consideration in all of the uh, licensed professions in Pennsylvania. We did not entirely achieve that goal, as we'll talk about in a little bit, um, but we broadly um, achieved that goal for a majority of licensed occupations. Um, but uh, know that it does not affect each and every occupation. It only affects licensees whose um, boards, occupational boards, are overseen by the Bureau of Professional and Occupational Affairs. If you hear me start talking about BPOA or Brendan talking about BPOA, that is the um, official uh, division of the Department of State. 
uh, that is responsible for these licensees. Uh, so um, most important perhaps is that there is going to be uh, new analysis um, which state boards must use if they're going to consider criminal records. Um, we list here the, the three main um, issues that will be in play and we will talk about this in depth as we go through the presentation. Um, and it also creates uh, new restricted licenses for people who were trained while they were incarcerated and who um, the boards may have some issue with providing full licenses because of the recency of their, um, their punishment for their uh, offenses. Um, barbers and cosmetologists are particularly the target of that um, provision. Um, although it is possible that the, um, the jails and prisons may start uh, training people to do other occupations, uh, these provisions would then cover those folks as well in other occupations. Um, we had been interested in preliminary determinations for people about whether their records would keep them out of a profession before they went into training. Um, and we achieved that in a somewhat minor way, um, not what we would have wanted, but um, better than nothing, you'll be hearing more about that. Uh, now, perhaps the most important pieces of information on this slide are um, contained in that last bullet, um, where you will find these provisions codified. They're primarily in 63 um, Pennsylvania Code sections, uh, 31, 12 through 18. Um, there are a few provisions that are not, that are in the Criminal History Record Information Act, and we'll flag those when we can. Um, but uh, because, again, the bill as drafted is confusing, that's where you will look for them in the Pennsylvania Code. And the other important piece of information is that this all goes into effect on December 28th. Uh, so not in effect yet, but um, December 28th will be here before you know it. So um, get that seasonal shopping underway. Oops, sorry, we skipped ahead there. Um, so why did we feel like occupational licensing reform was needed? Why was this a priority? Um, there were a number of reasons uh, that uh, are laid out here. Uh, first of all, uh, it was very clear that existing law and procedure uh, was overbroad and that many people who would um, be able to perform these professions without um, uh, causing there to be risk were being eliminated by the standards and how they were administered by the board. So, um, for instance, as you'll hear, uh, up to this point in time when the law passed, uh, anyone with any felony was susceptible at any time in their life from being eliminated from um, getting an occupational license. That will no longer be the case. Uh, a second reason was that there was too much inconsistency because the state boards had a great deal of discretion um, based on their own personal opinions as to who should be approved and who should not. Um, and these are not people who have expertise in, in criminal record matters. These are people who are expert in their fields. Um, so for instance, I appeared this week for the first time before the State Board of Nursing. 
And um, not surprisingly, I discovered that the board members were basically very senior nurses uh, who um, no doubt are quite expert in nursing, um, but are unlikely to be expert in being able to predict whether somebody's record uh, is going to prevent them from being uh, able to uh, safely perform in the profession or not. So Act 53 lays out some markers to help them um, make that determination when they evaluate people's records. If they evaluate people, people's records, we're hopeful that many uh, people might uh, end up uh, getting through to their license without needing the boards to act on the records at all. The third reason was uh, the unpredictability of piece of the licensing puzzle, that basically uh, people had no way of finding out ahead of time whether they would qualify for a profession or not. They had to kind of take it on faith um, and go to nursing school and spend the money and put in the time. And then at the end of that, um, figure out uh, whether they were going to be able to be approved or not. Uh, Obviously, that is a very daunting prospect for anyone. And certainly many people uh, decided not to go into uh, licensed occupations because of that. Now, uh, this gets down to the preliminary determinations that I talked about in the first slide. And um, it will not be a be all for everyone in terms of, of lending predictability, but at least people whose records will prevent them um, on the face of it from going into the occupation um, can find that out ahead of time. And we'll talk more about that. And finally, as you all know, um, Blacks and, and Hispanics are more likely than whites to have records. So the way things were being administered in this overbroad and inconsistent fashion meant that Blacks and Hispanics were less likely to be able to qualify for occupational licenses. So hopefully these are all issues that we improved upon somewhat, at least uh, in Act 53, when it goes into effect. Uh, there are more people who have occupational licenses, licenses than you may think. Um, the governor had a, a task force on occupational licensing a couple of years ago, and the facts that are forthcoming in these slides are, are things that we were told uh, through that task force's report. Um, but a, a cool one out of five um, Pennsylvanians in the workforce have occupational licenses, and the BPOA boards license about a million Pennsylvanians. So um, a, a good number of, of people in the state were unable to, um, to move forward into this large number of people who need licenses in order to get forward. Uh, this is not a marginal type of, of issue. This is somebody, this is an issue that applies quite broadly to um, many of our friends and neighbors and clients. All right. Um, now, we, we get down to the question of um, the scope of the law. Uh, so the, let's talk about who the new law does not apply to first. Um, only the boards that are within BPOA's jurisdiction are going to be covered. Um, and we will look at that in a minute. But for now, let's look at who is not within BPOA's jurisdiction. There are a, a number of quite... Um, large professions that are licensed that are not BPOA licensed. Uh, teachers, lawyers, security guards, right there, there are uh, three occupations that are not going to be covered 
because they've got their own licensing schemes outside of the Department of State. Um, certified nursing assistants, which is a, a job that many of our clients um, seek and hold, they are not covered by this because they do not have licenses. They have certifications. Um, and unfortunately, this only applies to licenses. And finally, there's some incompatibility between uh, the training and the actual licensing, because for instance, um, you have to go to nursing school uh, before you can be a nurse. And this law does not specifically uh, apply to, to nursing schools or, or schools that train the other occupations within BPOA. Uh, so there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance here for people in the field who are asking, but what if, if we, the nursing program, can't get hospitals to allow people to do rotations and such that will allow them to get nursing licenses? Um, there's going to be some work that needs to be done to convince the schools that they should not be um, applying their rules in a broader and more inconsistent way than um, Act 53 is. But the law does not specifically apply to the schools. So, so that's the bad news right here. Now let's look at the better news. Okay, who is covered? Um, according to the, um, the governor's task force, uh, these are the top six um, uh, boards that uh, license people in Pennsylvania. And as you'll see, the nursing board um, is way out in front of um, any other occupation. So uh, it's good news for our clients that uh, the nursing board will be subject to this uh, new law. Um, medicine, maybe not so much. I guess there are some people who are, are um, licensed by the, the Board of Medicine that might be covered, but um, certainly, we're not representing a bunch of doctors. However, we are representing a bunch of cosmetologists, uh, the third largest um, uh, board in terms of number of people licensed. Uh, and occasionally, at least at CLS, we see clients who are interested in going into real estate. Uh, and engineers and pharmacists round out the group. Uh, this slide um, shows the uh, other uh, notable professions that are covered. And I think in, in total, there are about two dozen uh, different boards, some of which are quite obscure, like um, I think there's something about Delaware River Authority uh, staff. Um, but these are the, the ones that uh, most of us would care about. So in terms, again, of our clients, just to, to um, point out a few that um, uh, occupations that our clients tend to be in, um, certainly barbers. Um, Brendan, hopefully, will talk a bit about how um, part of how we got into this was that we got lots of um, letters from people in state correctional institutes institutions who were training to be barbers and worried about getting licensed when they come out. Um, but many of our clients are entrepreneurs who become barbers and cosmetologists. Um, the therapist categories, I think we sometimes see clients in whether they want to be occupational therapists or physical therapists. Uh, social workers, we see among our clientele, uh, car salespeople. Uh, so uh, those are all some of the occupations that you could see this issue arise in uh, among your clientele.
Um, here's an example of one of the provisions of Act 53 that does not appear in those consecutively numbered um, sections in Title 63 that I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, in the Criminal History Record Information Act, which is Title 18, uh, Section 9124A1, um, you will find authority for the proposition that this doesn't apply simply to new licenses that people are seeking, but it would also apply potentially if there was a, an idea that a board had to suspend someone's license or revoke it or place other limitations on it. So um, this is meant to apply broadly to the consideration of criminal records by the boards uh, for whatever type of action they would be uh, interested in taking against an individual. Okay, um, here's the part where we talk about what the law has been and um, what it is now going to be. And um, most importantly, perhaps, is that is this first bullet here, that lifetime disqualifications for felonies, which used to be found in um, Title 18, the Criminal History Record Information Act, uh, this will no longer apply to the BPOA board. So no longer um, may there be lifetime disqualifications for any and all felonies. Uh, this was the worst aspect of the law as it had been on the books. Um, unfortunately, it remains for those occupations where uh, BPOA is not providing the oversight, but um, for all the BPOA uh, boards, this is no longer uh, the law as of December 28th. Um, one of the, the tricky things about doing this legislation was our um, desire to impact not just one or two professions, but to do this occupational license and reform broadly, where there are practice acts for like each of the professions that uh, talks about what the criteria are to be members of that profession, and often very specifically addressed um, what criminal records might be disqualifying. And obviously uh, amending say two dozen laws or even 18 or a dozen would be quite a feat uh, and make for quite unruly legislation. So fortunately we came upon this um, uh, strategy of doing this omnibus um, bill that overrules any of those practices acts to the extent that they are inconsistent with what Act 53 says. So just be aware, um, it may be possible that, uh, that people think that what is currently in the law of those practice acts is the law, um, but in fact, it has been overruled by Act 53. Um, finally, uh, and this is quite important, um, there have been many disqualifications of people uh, who've applied for licenses based on these concepts of good moral character, crimes of moral turpitude, ethical or honest practice. Um, and those laws will no longer exist, um, at least as applied to criminal records. So for instance, um, uh, just to, to pull an example out of the air, um, if the nursing um, law says that you are not of good moral character if you um, 
have a simple assault on your record, or let's say that um, that's the way it's been construed by the courts or by the State Board of Nursing, uh, that will no longer be the law. Um, Act 53's standards instead are going to govern. Um, let me digress for just a moment to talk about uh, a case that was in the news in the last couple of weeks and you may have heard about. Um, it doesn't really impact what we're talking about here, but uh, just to be clear how it fits into this puzzle, um, I will briefly tell you about the case of, of Habman versus BPOA, which was decided by an en banc Commonwealth Court panel on August 25th. Um, and the lawsuit there had been brought on behalf of the Institute for Justice, a libertarian leaning group, uh, on behalf of uh, two women who wanted to become cosmetologists and had been turned down based on their records um, under the good moral character um, prong of the, the cosmetology law. And the law was found to be unconstitutional by that panel of Commonwealth Court, but not on the grounds that um, as the way the law was drafted, it was a violation of due process. Rather, um, it was found unconstitutional because the court said, look, barbers are not asked to adhere to the same standards and they're basically doing the same job. Um, nor are other people who work in salons and spas and such. Uh, so basically applying this good moral character uh, provision to the cosmetologist was a violation of equal protection. Um, now, uh, there was an interesting footnote in the decision that basically said, um, this is all going to be different after December 28th, because then um, we're going to have Act 53 in place. Um, and at that point, it may be, we don't want to speculate, said the court, but uh, it may well be that none of this applies anymore because Act 53 supersedes it. Um, and they also noted that um, perhaps after Act 53, the concept of good moral character would survive, but not for criminal records. So I suppose that the board might say um, that your um, membership in a hate group, for instance, might show that you lack good moral character, um, and that would be a permitted basis to decline a license, but not um, because you had um, an old theft conviction on your record. So uh, in case you heard about the Haveman um, decision, which got a certain amount of publicity, that's how it fits into this whole thing. I think because it was uh, drawn so narrowly into the equal protection analysis, it's not gonna have a great deal of impact on our practice going forward. It does show though that um, the, the Commonwealth Court is willing to look critically at these criminal record cases. And I think that's good for our clients. Okay, now getting into what Act 53 does. Um, here is the first really crucial concept. Um, BPOA is supposed to publish a list of disqualifying criminal offenses for each of the occupations that it licenses. Um, and that means they're supposed to figure out what um, offenses are directly related, and we'll get to that definition in a second, to the occupation. So no longer a broad category of disqualifications like all felonies, um, they have to specifically 
publish a list of things that they think are directly related. And they're to do that in consultation with the boards and with um, the employer community that licenses uh, these professions. So for instance, I would imagine that hospitals and um, other trade groups might be asked to weigh in on um, what should be disqualifying under the, the nursing and medical board standards. Um, although we as representative of employees are not listed here, I'm, I can vow to you that we will make our efforts to get our, our toe in the door as well and have some input on uh, what crimes we think are connected. Um, but it's all going to be a bit of a mystery until those lists are published on December 28th, which is when they are due to be published in the Pennsylvania Bulletin. Um, there's no formal rulemaking at that time, but two years from that publication, there is to be formal rulemaking. Uh, the legislature was concerned because rulemaking can be quite onerous in Pennsylvania that there be adequate time to make the final list. Um, but they will require there to be public uh, proposed uh, regulations that are subject to public comment. And we certainly will have input on that, especially if we are not overjoyed with um, what they do uh, when they make this first list uh, this holiday season. Um, these rules are, are supposed to be widely circulated in the public. Um, they're supposed to be on websites. When you apply, you're supposed to get the list. Um, so this is to bring some transparency um, as to what these boards think uh, are offenses that are directly related. Uh, and these rules are to be used in all the contexts in which these boards act, whether it's for discipline or licensure or making one of these preliminary determinations. So December 28th is going to be a big deal, not only because it's the date that the new law goes into effect, but it's the date that we learn what those standards are for each of the occupations. Sharon, excuse me, this is Kelly. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yep. for the attorneys on the session, if you are interested in the CLE credit for your participation, this is the first of two poll question boxes I will be launching during the session and you must respond to both. So the uh, box will be up for two minutes. Thanks, Sharon. Feel free to continue. Thank you, Kelly. Um, so uh, here is the definition. The, the legislature did try to um, make a, um, a, a specific uh, definition of what directly related means. Um, Brendan and I, especially Brendan, talked through some of these concepts until we thought we could talk about them no more. Uh, so here's specifically what uh, the law says the, the concept of directly related is and what the, the BPOA should be looking at is, as they come up with their list that they're publishing for December 28th. Oops. Okay. All right, this is my last slide that I'm gonna to talk to you about before I turn things over to Brendan. Um, this may be the most important slide um, of the presentation because this is how this consideration is to be made of, of criminal records. So no longer do we have just um, broad and unguided um, uh, consideration by the boards. This is the, the analysis they are supposed to follow. 
uh, it allows for um, the applicants or the employees who are trying not to lose their licenses to have um, extensive input into the process. Um, so if you take nothing else away from this presentation, be sure to circle um, uh, slide number 12 in, in your uh, slide bank because this is where it's at. So um, the first stage of a two-stage process is that um, you look to see whether an offense that's on somebody's record is on the published list as being directly related um, to the occupation that they are seeking to work in. Again, the list is going to decide whether it's directly related or not. If the person's offense is on the list, um, then the next step of stage one is that the board is to look to see whether the person presents a substantial risk to, um, to clients or to future offending. And to do that, they're supposed to conduct an individualized assessment uh, that is uh, spelled out in the next slide. And, and Brendan will talk about that at some length. Uh, so uh, it's a rebuttable presumption that the person poses a substantial risk because their uh, offense is on the published list. But when the individual puts forward their um, own case of individualized assessment uh, and presents evidence of rehabilitation, that is where they can rebut um, the idea that they should not be licensed, even though they are on the published list. Um, there will be lots of uh, different types of things that they can speak to in their own behalf. Stage number two um, is a much more specific type of, um, uh, of analysis. Uh, think of stage number one as the broad directly related analysis. Stage number two is meant to be for outliers of cases that while not generally directly related, um, there may be something about the circumstances of a particular conviction that uh, should give the board pause. Um, and so the example that the legislature was giving us when they added stage two, because frankly, we were not real interested in there being a stage two, but they felt that there was a need for a safety valve where uh, if something was just really sort of so closely tied to the profession, um, the board could make a, a, a determination that the person should not be licensed. And the example that kept coming up was, what if um, a person has a simple assault and simple assault is not on the published list, but uh, the simple assault was um, committed in the course of performing the profession at issue or otherwise was closely connected to the profession at issue. They felt like there must be a way for the board to disqualify that sort of situation. Um, so under stage two, they can say there's something extraordinary um, about this particular um, type of, of offense as this person was involved in it that requires something beyond what stage one would allow. Um, even if the, the board wants to say that that's the case, the person again gets to provide the individualized assessment um, and, and show uh, the proof of rehabilitation or other proof that um, mitigates the, the risk that the board may be looking at. Um, so this, this two-stage analysis is basically how um, 
uh, Act 53 uh, requires criminal records to be analyzed. And with that, I'm going to not only take a breath, um, but allow Kelly to ask any questions that might have accumulated by now. Uh, and then we will go on to Brendan to round out the presentation. Hi, we don't have any questions yet. We do have one comment from Don Merritt. It says, ethical rules may be a help in consumer cases. Um, for example, an unscrupulous car dealer, possible loss of license can be a powerful bargaining tool. Hmm. Okay. Thank you, Don. Um, all right. Um, again, we'll take some questions at the end. So um, this slide in particular, I can understand if you need to let roll around in your head for a minute. Um, but I'm going to now turn things over to Brendan to tell you the rest of what you need to know about Act 53. Hi, so uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, there's a lot about this law that's inevitably going to have to play out in the Commonwealth Court. There are going to be tests to, to determine exactly what this all means. And uh, so we're hoping that our community can be on the front lines to be on the lookout to make sure that the boards are enforcing it correctly. Um, I'll just uh, very briefly, you know, the the kind of the impetus for this was a recognition that the Barber Board in particular, and then we, we realized the other boards as well, are very jealous of their discretion, and they like to, to maximize their own freedom to uh, deny people uh, for as broad reasons as they can come up with and prevent any uh, uh, limitations on that discretion by uh, the, the public by the by the courts. Um, this uh, legislation was an effort to limit the board's discretion, and I think it's only fair to assume that as time goes on, they will try to grab some of that back, and they will. Uh, the, the history of the boards would suggest that they are going to try to define uh, the 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 directly related offenses as broadly as possible. Um, that they are going to conduct the individualized assessment in a, a limited way, that they're going to apply the presumption um, for directly related offenses, the presumption that uh, uh, that it is directly uh, related, that it renders a person unfit. So they're going to treat that as an irrebuttable presumption. They're clearly not supposed to do that. So to the extent that we are noticing that they are not taking these factors on this slide seriously into account and weighing them generously and recognizing when these factors clearly do show that uh, the person does not pose a substantial risk, um, we're going to need to challenge the board. So uh, the, the factors that are um, set out um, in Act 53, and of course at the bottom you can see there's a catch-all. We, we advocated strongly for a catch-all because there are going to be cases where people have something to say, something to point to, about their own personal history, that's clearly going to be relevant. And if it doesn't fit into a box, too bad. Uh, the board is still required to take it into account. So the, the list is, number one, um, did the criminal conduct involve an act or threat of harm, including harm to someone's property or reputation? Um, you know, these are not, this is not simply a list of factors that can be helpful to the person. These, the, the legislature wanted this to be factors that uh, in, in some circumstances could weigh against the person. So uh, the fact that number one mentions whether that the, that the board is directed to consider whether it involves an act or a threat of harm suggests that 
it's at least a small point in, in the applicant's favor if it didn't involve an act or threat of harm. But of course, if it did, that will weigh against them. Number two, the facts and circumstances surrounding the conviction. And uh, again, where something, where a, a one or two word summary from the crimes code makes something sound bad, uh, especially with the those convictions that, that fall in the directly related list, there are often going to be facts and circumstances that can help explain what really happened, what the person's involvement really was, what led them to do that, um, and the board is, is going to be required to take that into account. Uh, number three, the number of convictions. It's going to, the board is going to be required to take it into account if you have something that looks serious, but it's the only thing you have on your record. Um, on the other hand, there are going to be people who have a lengthy rap sheet, and the board will take that into account and will weigh it against them. Um, increase, we wanted to get in the principle, which is just a basic principle. It's been part of the law as announced by the Commonwealth Court, as announced by uh, the EEOC with regard to uh, um, employer consider uh, consideration of convictions, that the passage of time, the amount of time between the conviction and the consideration by the state agency uh, is clearly a factor that they should be taking into account. And it was never clearly spelled out that they had to do it, even though there was jurisprudence saying that they should, uh, it wasn't written down in, in, in statute. So now it will be. Um, that's really the essence of, of number four, increase in age maturity is, you know, something that's automatic when, when it's been a year uh, since your conviction, you've, you've aged a year and, and presumably become a year more mature. Uh, number five, your criminal history, if any, after conviction. So they will be able to take into account the extent to which you have other convictions. They, it, it's clearly not appropriate for them to be denying you just because you have some second conviction, which is totally unrelated to the profession, but happens to have been after the conviction they're considering. But it's something they can at least look at according to this factor. Um, on the other hand, it should benefit you. And, and for many people, uh, it should help them that they can point to that and say, look, I have no criminal history since my conviction. That's clearly something that you have an obligation to weigh in my favor. Um, number six, the completion of education and training. When people have been dedicating themselves to going back to school, to getting trained, that's something that ought to weigh in their, in their favor. The fact that they have been making a genuine effort to prepare themselves for work. Uh, the, the, the boards are now going to be directed to, to take that into account and to give some weight to that. Number seven, uh, references from employers and others. Um, again, uh, uh, many of these things, I should say, are things that people have in the past brought to the attention of a hearing officer. So it, it, the way things have generally worked is that a board, the Board of Nursing or the Board of Barber Examiners will send out a notice saying we're proposing to uh, rescind your license or impose discipline uh, because you have a conviction. So if you think we shouldn't do that, and they would say in the most broadest, vaguest possible terms, if you want to contest this, you can ask for a hearing and present mitigating evidence to a hearing officer. Uh, we imagined that, and the hearing officer was acting on behalf of the board. Our expectation is that the same process will essentially be be followed, that that's the, sit, the, the setup that they, that they uh, that they have uh, followed for for years and years, and of course it's described in uh, in Title 63. 
Um, but now it's going to be clear what mitigating evidence is, which was never defined or, or spelled out before. Now it's going to be clear that either the board or a hearing officer acting on behalf of the board uh, is directed to take these into account. Um, and we're also hopeful and we expect that people who are approaching a hearing, people who request a hearing and are given one, will have every opportunity to know in advance, here are the kinds of things you can tell us. Um, we we expect that this list of what you can present, what you should present, what the board must consider will be widely available. Um, and we anticipate that people will be informed about it. So uh, getting back to list number seven is references from employers or others. Uh, number eight is examples of personal rehabilitation. Uh, that's not further defined. That's a, that's a pretty broad, vague category. Um, we expect that people will be able to present evidence of anything that feels relevant to them. Uh, and the board will be able to decide for itself whether, whether it's, it's, it's relevant, but they will certainly uh, be advised that they can present it and they'll have every opportunity to present it. Um, there may be specific stuff that people can point to um, when someone's had a DUI and they've gone through driver education courses and they've, uh, the courts often like to see that people have gone through alcoholics anonymous or that type of thing. Uh, certainly you can point to formal markers like that, but it's in, intentionally not limited to formal markers. It can be anything at all that, that demonstrates evidence of something that um, the court or the, the board of the hearing officer might consider rehabilitation. Number nine, if you meet other licensing requirements, especially in other states or perhaps for some other profession, that's evidence that you have dedicated yourself to becoming uh, licensed in that field. And that takes some effort and it takes, it involves necessarily some sort of review by some other government agency. So when some other government agency has given their approbation, uh, this current board is directed to take them into account and, and give it at least some weight. Number 10, uh, was there any criminal history while engaged in the occupation? Again, this may count against some people. Uh, in the example that, that Sharon mentioned, uh, if you committed simple assault and simple assault is not on the list, but the assault that you committed was against one of your clients, that's going to weigh against you. If you have no criminal history while engaged in the occupation, if everything you did was totally separate and removed from the work of the profession, that ought to count in your favor. And that should be a, a factor that the board should take into account. And then finally in 11, there's, uh, there's a catch-all and, and people can, can present whatever they think is, is relevant to their case for licensure. So there are some carve-outs. We wanted it to be the case that there would be no automatic bans, but there, there is still in the law a very limited automatic ban for uh, healthcare practitioners if they are convicted of a sexual offense. Uh, there is in effect a lifetime ban. Now this only applies to people who are covered by uh, Act 53. So as we mentioned, CNAs are not covered. Healthcare practitioners are people who uh, hold a license or certificate or registration and under Act 53, that would be a one of the BPOA boards. So this would not cover uh, CNAs, as I interpreted, um, and it also would not cover home health aides. And that's some of the most common uh, clients uh, that we see in our practice are CNAs and, and home health aides. So they should not be affected uh, by this lifetime ban. The sexual offenses are are not every 
possible sexual offense. They are enumerated in the act. They do not include prostitution. They do include promoting prostitution. And in, in my experience, uh, uh, prosecutors sometimes tag that on to people who are just really just engaged in regular prostitution. So it's possible that we will see some uh, RNs, LPNs who were having uh, a troubled time, maybe dealing with addiction uh, far off in their past, and they may encounter a problem with this. Uh, that may be grounds for a challenge in the future, but that is the, the narrow state of the lifetime ban now. There's also a restriction for people convicted of crimes of violence, uh, as defined in the 42 Pennsylvania Consolidated Statutes 9714. Uh, this is not all crimes of violence. That that section is sort of a shorthand for what's considered serious crimes of violence. It excludes some aggravated assaults, and it, it excludes all simple assaults. So not all crimes of violence, but specifically enumerated serious crimes of violence will prevent you from getting a license unless you meet these criteria. Uh, it does seem to put the burden on the applicant to show rehabilitation, uh, but hopefully people will be able to do that. To the extent that the boards are treating that, again, to the extent that the boards are treating this as, in effect, uh, a de facto permanent lifetime ban and are not seriously considering uh, people who, who do make this showing, that is going to be another area for, for legal challenge. Finally, drug trafficking. One of the most common reasons that people were denied a license in the past was because either uh, the, the Section of Title 18 said that any board could deny for any felony, or for many of the practice acts, it also said if you have a drug felony. And many, many people are caught up uh, in a felony drug conviction because they were accused of having sold or having an amount that suggested they might sold. So those uh, drug, felony drug bans of the practice acts are now limited to what's supposed to indicate true drug trafficking and not someone who sold a very small amount of drugs. Uh, in the statute, they now describe the amount and weight of drugs that had to be involved, and that is supposed to be indicative that someone was involved in a, a, a serious and substantial way in, in selling drugs. And very helpfully, uh, the burden is on the board to prove that that amount was there. And frankly, we anticipate that it will be difficult to prove that because in our experience, records do not easily show what the amount was. Um, although the boards may do some spelunking uh, in the, the, the criminal court files, uh, they've been pretty creative when they want to deny people in the past. So we'll see how far they go to, to prove trafficking. Um, and there are definitions of these terms uh, set out in uh, Section 3113. So the restricted licenses, this is, um, this is in effect the save taxpayer dollars section. Uh, it was pointed out that many people trained to be barbers and cosmetologists at taxpayer expense while incarcerated in state correctional institutions. And so the state stuck this section in saying, okay, even if people would be prevented from being licensed as a barber or a cosmetologist by the other operations of the act, they have a directly related defense, they are unable to show that, to, to convince us that they would not be a substantial risk. Even so, we spend all this money to train them they dedicated themselves to doing the training. Here's what we'll do. 
we'll let those folks who otherwise still wouldn't be able to get it, they can still get a restricted license to practice for a brief period, essentially under supervision. And then uh, after a set period, it doesn't say exactly how long it could be. I think the board has, has some freedom to set how long the restriction will last. We anticipate it would be one to two years. Um, it, as long as they practice without incident, under supervision for a couple of years, uh, they should be able to get a regular license. And as Sharon mentioned at the outset, uh, there is also the possibility of restricted license for any other uh, license that someone trains for while in a state correctional institution. The only ones that we know of currently are barbers and cosmetologists. But uh, again, some state prison may start offering training on some other field that is regulated by a BPOA board. And if so, these same provisions would apply. So the preliminary determinations, this was meant to uh, enhance people's certainty that they would be able to get a license so that they could know for sure whether it made sense to enroll in a training program, to take out a student loan, to devote their time and energy to training. The truth is that it's not going to be really possible for people to have absolute assurance from a preliminary determination that they won't be denied a license. And the reason for that is because of the second prong of the investigation where the board will have the ability to look at the facts and circumstances of a, a, a conviction that was not directly related. So what the preliminary determination is limited to is simply a declaration that you do not have a conviction that is on the list of directly related offenses. We do think this will help some people this will give some people some assurance uh, because many people are unclear of what's on their record or they have trouble interpreting what's on their record. And the list of directly related offenses should be relatively widely spread, but some people will still be unclear exactly if how their record matches up with that. And so we are anticipating this will help some people, but inevitably people who get this preliminary determination will still be subject to the possibility that the board will in the future go beyond the list of directly related offenses, look more in depth at their specific conviction and possibly determine that they pose a substantial risk based on the facts and circumstances of the, uh, the conviction. Um, it will still be the case that people, even if they get a, whatever determination they get, it, they will retain the full ability to make a presentation to the board when they actually apply for licensure. Uh, and we'll have a full opportunity to show that they do not, in fact, really pose a substantial risk. A few other changes that the, the, the law, uh, that, that Act 53 makes, uh, it clarifies that licensing boards cannot use uh, convictions that have been expunged or sealed as grounds to uh, do adverse action, not just deny, but revoke uh, a license uh, they are not BPOA boards, um, are not permitted to use juvenile adjudications, and also there is going to be a best practice guide with each, for each individual board. There is supposed to be a layperson's guide to navigating the system when you have a record and explaining in lay people's terms essentially what we've just been talking about. Uh, the best practice guide is supposed to include the list of directly related offenses. So, uh, again, the preliminary determination can explain that to you, but there is going to be a $45 fee. 
some people will find it useful to pay that, but we're hoping that a lot of people will get the information they need and answer their questions just by referring to this best practice guide uh, once it is uh, available. Um, and we'll also, should also, uh, we assume, set out the 11 factors. So as I was saying, how people should have a sense of what presentation they can make to the board in order to show that they do not pose a substantial risk. Uh, those factors should be, and we assume will be set out in these best practice guides, which should be widely available on the web and in other places, and hopefully in, in places where people go to pursue the, and explore the possibility of licensure, the community college, vocational classes, that kind of thing. Uh, and so the way this is gonna be enforced is we, our expectation based on the way the law is, it currently is and, and, and the changes that Act 53 makes and doesn't make is that it will be uh, enforced through the channels that it has been up to this point, which is that uh, when people are, have a conviction and the board indicates that considering denying or revoking a license or suspending, uh, people will have the opportunity to go to a hearing to challenge that and make the, the individualized showing and the, the showing of the 11 factors uh, to a hearing officer who will make a recommendation to the board, which will make a final order where people disagree with that, they can appeal to the Commonwealth Court. And the Commonwealth Court has often over the years struck down the boards and found that they have gone too far and improperly exercised their discretion. So as I mentioned at the outset, I, I, I think that this community can be part of shaping the law in the future uh, with a, appropriate appeals to Commonwealth Court. Brendan, if I may just interrupt here, this is Kelly. I am launching the promised second of two poll boxes for attorneys on the session requesting CLE credit. Um, please respond and the poll will be up for about a minute and a half. And please continue, Brendan. Thank you. I think we may have uh, come to the end of the substance of slides, have we, Sharon? Excuse me. Um, yes, Brendan, we have. Um, there's a, a question that I think fits neatly, <coughs> excuse me, into the, um, the topic you were just covering, which is what is the standard of review and appeal? Will the court defer to the board's determination? <coughs> so uh, Act, Act 53 does not change the this, the standards of review that has have been in place. Um, so uh, courts certainly have granted some deference uh, to the board's determinations in the past, um, but it's not uh, automatic. Um, they don't just rubber stamp them. They, they regularly do review them and, and challenge them. Um, and so the, the kinds of appeals that have been uh, won in the past, uh, they will be launched in the future and they, they can be, you know, one using the same standard of review uh, in the future. And we're hoping that people in this community will do that. So that would be um, the familiar standards of unconstitutional questions of law, um, substantial evidence on findings of fact. Um, uh, if you find yourself in a position to potentially appeal to Commonwealth Court, please contact Brendan or me, and we would be happy to, to work with you on that. Other questions for us? If anyone has any other questions, if you would please type them into the chat box now. 
And I'm not seeing any other questions. So with that, I would like to thank Brendan and Sharon for giving of your time and your wealth of knowledge today. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. Thanks for everyone for joining us and have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, Kelly, and everyone enjoy your weekend. Take yes, care. thanks for having us.